I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. So let's begin. Today we have with us the multi-talented Ray Parker Jr. Ray is considered one of America's great guitarists, but he's also a very successful singer-songwriter, performer, record producer, and actor. He's best known for writing and performing the theme song of the hit movie, Ghostbusters. It earned him Golden Globe, Grammy, and Academy Award nominations for Best Original Song. Before Ghostbusters, Ray had a successful solo music career with his band Radio. He wrote, played, and toured with such iconic artists as Barry White, Marvin Gaye, and Stevie Wonder. His songs have reached number one, and he's had more than 15 songs in the Hot 100 on the Billboard charts. He launched his own podcast, has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and if all that's not enough, a documentary of his life story is in the works with the title, Who You Gonna Call? Well, the answer to that question is simple. We called Ray Parker Jr. We would like to start at the beginning. Where were you born? I was born in Detroit, Michigan, the inner city of Detroit, Michigan. How old are you? I'm. How old am I now? <laughs> yeah. She asked me a question. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm 64. I'm so proud. It's, so oh, you, man, were born, you were born. You were born. 1954. I was just going to say. And yeah. that's. In fact, there's a movie called Detroit. I don't know if you saw that movie. Yes. Uh, you saw the movie. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, the interesting thing about that movie is I grew up on that same street at the same time, and I also got beat up by the police. And I'm lucky I didn't get killed or else we wouldn't be having this interview. So all the yeah. way back then, Detroit was a city that was in turmoil. Well, first of all, Detroit comes from turmoil. I don't know if you guys know, but when, when alcohol was illegal, right, and there was prohibition, most of all the alcohol sold came through Detroit. Like 85% of prohibition was Detroit. People didn't know that. And that sort of built the city. We had what we call a group called the Purple Gang, which was two Jewish guys, the Bernstein brothers. And they were more powerful than Al Capone and everybody else. And the Kennedy family, everybody bought their booze through these guys, which in a way helped build a city. And stuff like that. It was coming through Canada. Canada had a law where you could make the booze, but you couldn't sell it in Canada. You could sell it to those idiots across the border. (laughs) It was simple (laughs) as that. And they said that the Bernstein brothers were so powerful that Al Capone came to Detroit one day and said he's going to buy his booze direct. And they whooped him up, said, no, you're not. And you're going to pay us more now. And you go back home. Wow. Wow. And the St. Valentine's Massacre was those guys, you know. Yeah. So you grew up in a city that was turmoiled when you were a little boy. It was racism. It was violence. It was very, very musical at the same time. And I grew up in a neighborhood where all the other mothers and fathers could spank you in the neighborhood. And everybody looked out for each other's kids. So you were communally raised by people yeah. who were loving and caring. Yeah. But I, but I know friends of mine, they looked at that, that movie Detroit and they're like, oh, this is crazy. This is, No, it wasn't that crazy. You know, <laughs> even today, I don't know that much about sports because the police would come in and get me, smack me around, make me wet my pants, take my 15 cents and my three M&Ms. The cops. And they would take my basketball or they take my football. So I thought it was subconsciously in my mind, I thought it was illegal or a bad thing. To play sports. To play sports. Even now, I look at basketball, it just kind of goes past me and they, all of my kids are very athletic, but I don't really participate participate in that as much as my wife and it's not because i don't appreciate or like the sport it's just because at a low, you know young age it was kicked out of my mind so or beat out of my well, mind are you an only child no i have a younger brother and i had an older sister that just passed 
I'm sorry. Yeah, you know, I had a half sister, but I have to have a younger brother. And I was born late by my parents. I think my mom was 47, and I was her first. Oh my son. god! Wow. Yeah. wow. Were you a um, like? Hi, I'm here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She didn't think she could have any kids. She says, you know, she was married before. But nothing ever happened, and she had boyfriends. I didn't want to hear all that, but she told me anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but you oh, were that's that, too much. I don't need them anymore. Too much you information. You were what they called the change of life baby. Yeah, yeah. She was like, well, I never, I had all these guys, da, 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 but I never got pregnant before. I was like, whoa, whoa, I don't want to hear all that. You, know? you must but, have been precious to her. Yeah, I was. You know, And uh, I, what I remember growing up is every time we went to the grocery store, people say, well, you have lovely grandkids. And my mother would be, those are my kids. <laughs> and then there'd be this tension in the room. I'm like, what's happening? You know? <laughs> So, is your, was your mom married to your dad for your life? No, this is more interesting. Okay, my mom was married to my dad when my brother was born. But I look at the baby pictures now, and I'm in a different house, right? And I saw. So I asked my mom one day when I was in my twenties. I said, "You know, I'm not in the right spot. I mean, the, what's this couch? I don't, you know." She says, "Well, me and your dad weren't getting along. I got pregnant, and he was talking trash, and my house was nicer than his, and I wasn't moving to his junkie house, and he said he wasn't moving into mine, and we had this altercation, so." I made him buy a whole new house, but you weren't in it when you were born. You were in my house. Oh, wow. So I was like, wow. Okay. She sounds like a strong woman. Yeah. And she was. And she, I guess she was married to somebody before who spent all the family money and, you know, that sort of a thing. Nobody you knew, though. Nobody I knew, no. So when your mom and dad, were they together when they raised you? Oh, yeah. 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 They were together to the end. They were. From beginning to end, the, all, everything I know, they were always married. But what was interesting is my mom, after having dated and married before and the rest of the stuff, she says, I wanted to marry a man who was financially stable, who wanted something in life. She says, I'm not going back to the guy who takes the rent money and spends it at the racetrack, and I'm done with all that. And she married my dad. And my dad was a very, very practical guy. Um, he owned his own house. He owned another rental property. He worked at Ford, so he never made more than 16000 which, by the way, back in those days wasn't that bad. No, know? but it was a nice living, and you yeah. got benefits. And But he was never in insurance. debt. He never did anything, which he passed the same thing on to me. He's, my dad was, if you can't afford to buy, just don't. Don't run up to credit cards. And, you know, his first credit card, I'll never forget. He didn't understand the concept of it. So he was insulted. He cut it up into little pieces and sent it back to him. <laughs> he did that on several cards right on up to we were taking a trip and we wanted to rent a car. And he couldn't rent a car because he didn't have a credit card. <laughs> he couldn't check in. And he was like, what's this? I don't need this. Card. He thought it was an insult. Yeah. yeah. So I was raised by him, which I think really uh, helped me financially with a lot of ideas and other stuff. What was your mom like? My mom just wanted to stay home and take care of the family. Wow. Wow. She was a stay-at-home mom. That's what she wanted to do. She had plenty of jobs before. In World War II, she drove rivets and airplanes and that sort of thing. Rosie so, the Riveter Yeah, she's seen gal. more than enough work. That's why she said, I'm going to marry somebody who's stable, who's going to do the right thing, who's going to take good care of me, and that's it. Well, and it sounds like dad. you had a nice upbringing. I did have a nice upbringing. Just the neighborhood was a little rough. When did you leave Detroit? I left Detroit as, as soon as I turned 18 years old, so as soon as legally possible. My father told me I couldn't leave until 18. So you mentioned that um, Detroit was a musical town. Yes. Talk about that a little bit. At six years old, I formed a band called the Stingrays. Because right, I didn't want to dance six. with the girls. At six. At six. six, absolutely. And we were, played. were you emulating you something you had seen? No. Um, you just... Actually, I didn't want to play music. My two best friends, Ollie and Nathan, were actually already in a music class. And I was in a gym class. And we did these Russian dances with so, the girls where you change partners. And I didn't want to dance with the girls. I didn't like girls at six years old. I just you know, didn't like it. You know, I didn't want to do it. So I went to the principal and said, I, I want to do something else. 
At first, the principal just sat quiet for 10 seconds, like, this is a little six-year-old kid coming to my office telling me he doesn't want to do this, he wants to do something else. But she, you know, obliged me and took me to a music class where you can take music. And there I saw two of my friends already in the music class. And I only had two friends, so they were both in the music class. Ollie was playing the drums and Nathan was playing the trumpet. And they asked me what instrument did I want to play because you had to check an instrument out, took it home. Well, it wasn't going to be the tuba, okay? So I took the clarinet. I wanted the flute, but the girls had taken all the flutes. So I took the clarinet and the teacher saw that I wasn't that interested. And this, by the way, is the teacher who had changed my entire life. Probably the most important person in my life. Name? Name Alfred T. Kirby. Tall guy, too. He's like six foot three or something. And he looked at the three of us and he could tell that I wasn't as interested as the other two. I was just there. He says, we're going to start a band. And that was second or third day I was in the class. Wow. And he says, we're going to call it the Sting Race, which I didn't catch at the time. But years later, it's like, he put my name in the band because I needed the most enthusiasm. And the other wow, two guys didn't guy. catch it either. None of us I didn't it. get that either. Until yeah. Wow. He called the band the Sting Race. And it was, so the R-A-Y was in there. It's like, hmm, interesting. And so that led me. I did that for five, six years. And at 11 years old, I began to be tall like my kids. And my brother got a guitar. And I just loved the guitar. So I switched to the guitar. I sold my saxophone, which I had graduated to by then. It cost $800 that my dad was still making payments on, right, that he financed for me because he loved me playing the saxophone. I traded my brother for his $50 guitar, which upset the entire family. My dad was <laughs> depressed. He was like, what are you doing? You know, play so I said, I don't like the saxophone. He says, but I'm still paying. Are you kidding me? You know, so it was like a big deal. Because I think the sax was a busher sax, and it cost $800. It's a beautiful instrument. Wow. For yeah. a guy making $16,000 a year, you that's could a buy crazy a brand new Cadillac for three or $4,000. <laughs> right. So I just blew $800, and I'm, I don't, I'm just said I don't want to use it anymore. You know? But for some reason on the guitar, it was a very, very magical instrument for me. I had more ideas than the clarinet sax. Uh, even though I was really, really good at playing the sax and clarinet, if I, I could just read the music and play anything in the music. I had first chair in the in the you know, band. But when the music stopped, I stopped. And so mm-hmm. I thought, well, maybe music's just not my thing. I have no ideas. I don't know what to do with it, you know. And then I got the guitar, and I had lots of things to do with it. So it goes like this. At 10, 11 years old, I got my first guitar. I practiced every day all day till I drove everybody nuts. <laughs> then I broke my leg on a bicycle, which turned out to be a blessing because I couldn't walk. I couldn't go to school. I had a cast from my toe all the way up to my waist. And I got really, really, really good in one and a half years, like really good. All I did was play. And I played so much that my poor mom and dad, they just couldn't take it anymore. They didn't want to hear any more guitar. And I remember one winter, my dad put the amp on the front porch. He says, I love my son. And he said, we all thought that he was going to play and we let it get over a month or two and this was going to slow down. But it obviously wasn't going to slow down, right? (laughs) I lived in a two-family flat. I chased a renter upstairs. They moved out. (laughs) Because of the music. Yeah, because of the music. They just moved out. They just said, here's our notice. We're done. <clears throat> My best friend, Ollie, who played the drums, Nathan lived down the street, but they were m- making noise and they were renting around the block. So they rented from my dad and we moved Ollie in upstairs so we could put our instruments in the basement. Right. And so that's how that ended up working wow. out to solve the problem. So there you were. Let me just make sure I get this. You're yeah. out on the thing, learning how to play the guitar, self-teaching yourself. Yeah. Ollie moves in, his family moves in, and now yeah. you have a place downstairs to have the, your first Yeah, now band. we can keep everybody up and nobody can get mad because both their kids are making noise. Yeah. yeah. And one day, while the parents couldn't take it anymore, they put our instruments, they, were, they weren't that polite, I guess, they put our instruments on the front porch so the whole neighborhood could hear. But one guy drove by and said, son, will you play that guitar for me? I'll give you $15, you know. 
I was like, wow, fifteen dollars? Wow, Are right. you kidding me? I'm close to you know, I can buy a bicycle with a half of you know if I make another half. And so I played in his backyard, and that led to other people hearing us. And the next thing I you know I got a job working with a group called the Spinners. Yeah. I know the spinners. Yeah, they, they heard me playing at something somewhere. And I think I was 12, 13 years old. And they the guy brought out the sheet music. He said, if you can play this music, Fascinating Rhythm, which was a, obviously a hard piece of music because yeah. that's what he used to test his musicians. And I played it. And he was amazed. And he says, I want you to go on tour with us, you know. At and they 13. were signed to Motown at the time. not at, They hadn't got to Philadelphia. That's 13. where Motown was from, Detroit, right? Yeah. You're 13. I'm 13. How did this hit your parents but, when you got invited to go on the road well, the, like that? First of all, it wasn't even so much to go on the road that got them. Anything that kept me out of drugs, fighting, and you know, getting in trouble. Because my dad's best friend across the street, his son was in jail all the time. And so his father would tease my dad about spending all this money on saxophones and the rest of it. And my dad would tease him about, well, you, you spend all your money on lawyers. Right. <laughs> you don't have anything. <laughs> so I don't want to hear from you. Right. right. And your kid's in jail. And your kid's in jail. Your kid's in jail. My kid's not in jail. Yeah, exactly. So they said, sure, if you do your homework and do your school things, you know, you can leave Friday night, go on tour and come back Monday morning, which is which is what we would do. You know, and that was by car because most of those gigs were in Indiana, you know, Illinois. So they were close to Michigan. you were yeah. getting paid. And I was getting paid. So then at the same age, 13, we we're in like 13, 13, 14. I started playing with the neighbor down the street, a guy named Jeep Smith. And his best friend was a guy named Dick Stein. So we started playing all the Jewish bar mitzvahs, weddings. And That's money. I used to do two, <laughs> three weddings and bar mitzvahs a week. Have my tuxedo on, play all the Bird Baccarat songs, I do all the stuff, A Train, you know. There's certain things that Jewish people in Detroit, everybody wanted the same songs. Everybody <laughs> wanted the same thing. I love these people because they made it just wonderful for us. We learned all the songs and we played the same ones at every wedding, every bar mitzvah. And, you know, at, later in later years, I moved to California and people invited me to bar mitzvahs and they're sitting there prepping me. I said, Excuse me, I've been a lot more than you've been to. <laughs> I got this down. Don't worry about this. I know how this goes, you know. And so those would pay, I don't know, 25, 30 bucks a night, uh, a performance, you know? So I could do four of those a week. And by this time, I graduated to a club called the 20 Grand, which had the Temptations, mm. Smokey Robinson, mm-hmm. uh, Gladys oh Knight and the Pips I play with. Right. Greatest music. Yeah. So now, I'm, let's say I'm 15 now. And just to give you some numbers, I was doing all the recording sessions at Holland Doja Holland at 15. <sighs> So I could make $350 in cash, no tax. We didn't pay taxes in Detroit. This, <laughs> you know, I don't know where the government was, but they weren't in Detroit. Okay, <laughs> So we didn't pay taxes. So I was making $350 every 10 days, playing it to 20 grand. I could do four, five bar mitzvahs and weddings on the weekends and make another 125, 150 bucks. And I could do two or three recording sessions a week and make 70, 80 bucks a recording session. Wow. So I announced to my dad, I don't need any more clothes. I, do you keep your money? I got my money. Wow. At age 15. At age 15, yeah. Plus, besides the money, you're mm-hmm. in this complete, I'm having the time of my yeah. life. Yeah. The time of my and life. And surrounded by people who you're probably learning from. Yes. I'm learning a lot. I'm having a lot of fun. The only thing that suffered was my education in school. Well, if I'm doing all these things, I'm obviously not quite showing up right. all the time. And the good news there is we were in Detroit. Most things were corrupt. We paid the union people off, so we didn't have to pay no union dues and the rest of the stuff. And the teachers pretty much the same. I gave a teacher 75 bucks. Teacher gave me a B, you know, so I could make it somewhat respectable, you know. So you and, got uh, out of school, but you didn't, you didn't get I the education. Got out of school, but you know what? I, I was a pretty smart kid anyway. I could pass the test, even though I never studied. And unfortunately, the neighborhood I grew up in, they, they had we had the same book every year anyway. 
It was the same math book right, we had yeah. two years before. It's like I already did this. You know, I know how to count. I know how to do this. What, what am I here for? You know? Were you having? Were you into drugs at all, or having no. issues? So you just were working. I saw your ass everyone up. else doing drugs, but so it, it was all you. around me. I just didn't see anybody winning doing drugs. Right. They were losing money, they were right. having a hard time. So it just didn't look like anything I wanted to right. do. And on the scale of peer influences, you're in a room with people like Marvin Gaye. Yes, working. Paint that picture for us. Oh, What's that like? Marvin Gaye, what is that like working? Well, we go into the studio, of which we are making lots of money, and we do two sessions a day, of which you can't go to school that month. <laughs> so we're making incredible music. Marvin, in the morning, sometimes would like to smoke a joint or something like that, you know? He felt bad because I was the youngest one in the studio, so he'd throw me the keys to his Cadillac, right? And say, why don't I get lost for a couple hours, right? So I'm making money while I'm getting lost for a couple hours, too. And he had one of those super fly Cadillacs, like in the movie. But if you live in the ghetto of Detroit, there's no better car. This is like a convertible Rolls Royce on steroids. So I'm driving that, leaning with my head right under the mirror. I'm leaning so hard. Got my afro. And you're so cute, and girls are probably like Cohen. Ray. I got my afro and I pull up to the high school and your friends are like, that looks like rain. But, but I'm not letting them pull over. They don't mess up everything. So I roll the window up and I just keep going. You know? But I'm driving around having the time of my life. Then we come back to the studio and then, you know, we record and then we go from Marvin's house, not off, off of Livernois, wasn't that far. And we go over there and we sit down and listen to the, to the music. Now, people today hear these stories. They're like, well, you did what? You know, but at the time it wasn't that big of a deal. You know, we record hear the tapes. The tapes sound great. Then we go sit in the living room and think about what to do next. And we just hang out at his house, eat some food, and we're just casually sitting in the living room. You had time. You had lots of time. And everybody was getting along and everybody was hanging out and All playing music. All musicians loved each other. We all got along. But, you know, there was a, there was a code of They're ethics. older than you, these guys. They're all older yeah, than you. Yeah, all these guys are older than me. All the funk brothers are older than me. All these, I was a young kid in the But studio. they let you hang out because you were talented. Yeah. And what happened to out. Ollie? Is he Ollie, he's out selling too? real estate. Yeah, no, he was playing. And he doing was hanging stuff. out yeah. too. Yeah. And my other buddy, Nathan, he's now the band leader for Stevie Wonder, still, mm. even wow. till today. Yeah. And a lot of people we thought were going to play music forever, a lot of them fell by the wayside, sort of, you know. Yeah. The music that came out of Detroit yeah. at the time that you were there. Unbelievable. Is it like that now? No. It's, it's Detroit's all but closed up now, which is a shame. And that's part of the story we're coming up to. At that time, Detroit did not only Motown records, but we had Holland, Doja Holland, which they left Motown. And they formed their own label, and they had hits like the Honeycombs, put in the one ads, and Free to Pain Band to go, and Chairman of the Board, Patches, you know. you know. Mm-hmm. So there were lots and lots of hits coming there. But Stax Record had an office in Detroit, too. Mm-hmm. So they had a studio there, and, and Detroit was just a musical city. But at the same time, there was lots of violence. There was lots of positive, too, because the music was positive. The violence was just negative. Like if See. the police pulled you over, you never pull over. You tell, put your flashes on, let them know. When I get to that big intersection up there with lots of people, I'll pull over. But I'm not going to pull over here right. just because you put your flashes on because you're going to get beat up. You know, wow. Well, just so, corruption, gangster on so oh, many different yeah, levels. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So you're playing music. You're a really young man in yeah. a room with also young men, but older young men. Yeah. And you stop and go to college? No. You don't go to college. I do go to college. Just here we go. Here we go. (laughs) So, yeah. Okay. Ever since I was a little kid, I saw (laughs) Leave it to Beaver. And the things that excited me about Beaver was not just the sunshine. You know, Beaver rode his bike to school and he didn't get beat up. 
and nobody stole his bike and it was there after class. I mean, I just couldn't believe where, where is this at? And Beaver had a room with pennants in the room and you had to go upstairs. And I'm like, where's the house where you got his room where he gets this big room where he gets the pennant? My room wasn't big enough for the pennant to hang, you know. I remember my room was so small. I could, at six or seven years old, I could snatch the sheet off my brother. You know, I could reach and grab it because his bed was that close to mine. You know, we, we were touching each other. And I just was fascinated to where these people at Gidget, where are they at? We went to school uh, not only with brogans on, which are thick boots on, but then we had rubber galoshes that go over the Oh, boots. I remember this. And we had all these with things the on. on them? Yeah, yeah. The latches and the snow gets caught in the latches and they freeze. And, and then we had to walk 10 blocks to school and it could be five below zero. You know, it just could be, you know, it was just interesting. Then if you didn't go to the right place, let me start by saying this. The person furthest away would go through the alley and pick up the others. And so by the time we got to school, we were a big gang. And if you missed the gang and went by yourself, somebody steal your coat or they put a knife to you and take your stuff, you know. And if you put you And you're like a your, kid, a little kid when this is going on. Yeah. And you couldn't put your stuff in the locker in, high, in junior high or high school because they just come break the locker and steal your coat out of it. So you had to wear this, all this heavy clothing in class, which they had heat on in class. So oh now you got God. all this junk in class that you're trying to put on the back of your chair with your books. And then to next class, you got to put all the coats and stuff back on with the books and go. You know, so it was really uncomfortable. A lot of stuff going on. But How old were you? Like 14, 15. Wow. Like but Beaver didn't have to do that. Right. It's because you live there. And so <laughs> I always told all my relatives, I'm going to California. I'm going to get me one of those houses with the horseshoe driveway, and I'm going to get me a nice car. And they'd laugh. I mean, my cousin would be on the floor laughing so hard. He's like, this yeah. kid. I told my dad when I believed in the stork, I said, I think the stork may have dropped me off early. I mean, or not, you know, I think in, this is a mistake. Maybe in the wrong place? <laughs> yeah. I knew it was in the wrong this place. This should have been sending me to Los I'm Angeles. I'm in the wrong place. Yeah, I don't know what happened, but they dropped. when he dropped me, I was in the wrong place. You know. By the way, the first person that told me that ain't the way it went, I said, what, what happened? He says, you know, your dad climbed on top of your mom. and da, da. He said that I punched him out straight in the nose and almost broke his nose. <laughs> now, you talk about my mama, bam. You know? <laughs> Here he goes. It was a long time before I figured out I should, probably shouldn't have done that. You know, but And so then... The biggest dilemma for me in my entire life was a movie came out called The Beverly Hillbillies. And I think I must have been like 10, 9 or 10 years old. And I saw The Beverly Hillbillies and I went, oh, my gosh. And I was talking to, I mean, I sat there for maybe months and I finally asked one of my cousins, I said, you know, I'm so confused. I said, all my life I had plans. I knew I was going to do, but now I'm not sure. I don't know if I want to go to Hollywood or Beverly Hills. And he looked at me, he says, they're next to each other. I said, they are? He says, yeah, like Detroit and Gross Point and Highland Park. They're right the same spot. Boy, that was a relief. Right? Yeah, I thought that was the Cute. best. That was the biggest relief. I can remember the day he said it to me. It was, it was the biggest relief of my life. I said, well, this is no problem. I'm going to, you know, California. That's, that's it. I'm going to California. Okay, so now we're going to fast forward to your question of college and high school. I graduated high school with a 1.9 average, which means I wasn't getting into too many colleges. But my SAT score was 98%. And they said, there's no way in the world he can be a 1.9 student and have 98 on it. So they made me take it over, right? And then I got pretty close to that score again. And a guy came over my house and said, you know what? We don't know what happened here, but something's not matching up, right? He spoke to me and he said, you sound like an intelligent guy. You don't sound like the 1.9 kid. And he says, we will let you into our college, which was Lawrence Institute of Technology, a high-end school there. And they would, they were 
more teaching you how to draft and draw. Mm-hmm. And, you, know, you get a job for Ford or GM and all that kind of stuff, which I didn't like anyway. But okay, I'm going to go to college, make my parents happy because my dad had been saving money for me to go to college since before I was born, like five years before wow. I was born. I was going to be the first one in history in the family to graduate college and get a degree and get a white collar <laughs> job. That's what my dad called it. He says, Dad, son, you're going to get a retirement pension, white collar job pension. I'm 18. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? At that time, I was seven because I got out of high school early. So I'm 17 years old. He's talking about pension and retirement. And, you know, it's like, I'm going to sit in this office that's maybe that big, maybe have a window, maybe not, and do this for 50 years and I'm excited. Then you give me my pension at 60. What are we we doing there? You know, and I wanted to play the guitar. So luckily for me, uh, in the first year of college, Stevie Wonder called me up and he says, I want you to go on tour with me. He says, you don't have to audition. Everybody's told me about you. I know who you are, right? We've never met, but I know who you are and you don't even have to audition. Must have been unbelievable. It was unbe- hey, Stevie yeah. Wonder's on the phone oh. for you, right? Well, I hung up a phone on him several times. Because <laughs> I thought somebody was jerking me around. Music oh from my, my mind gosh. is my favorite record. You know? Yeah, yeah. And I'm playing all the time. And what's the odds Stevie Wonder's going to call you at your house <laughs> after you've been playing his music all day? It's just like, come on. Yeah. I can win the lotto easier than this. You know? <laughs> but no, it was Stevie Wonder. And, and I hung up. I think the fourth time I hung up, I put some four-letter words with it that I maybe shouldn't have said. And then he Poor called Stevie. back again. I know. <laughs> he called back again. He says, you know, we're not communicating. And he said, just listen to this. And he played me the rhythm track that he had just started on the song Superstition. You know? Oh, it was like, oh, oh my God. Gosh. Are you kidding? I just hung up on Steve. I mean, I, you know. <laughs> so then I, I started listening. I paid attention. And he said to me, I'll never forget what he said. He says, you don't have to audition. You're the guy. I know you're the guy. You're from Detroit. Don. He says, I want you, what I want you to do, and I want you to think about it. So I want you to come with me to San Francisco and we're going to cut a record on Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Then I want you to come with me to LA. I heard LA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to cut this album, Talking Book. And then I want you to go on tour with me in the Rolling Stones. And this is 1972. And I was just turning 18. And so I said, that's fine. But, you know, I got to ask my parents because I wasn't even 18 yet. I said, I got to talk to my parents. I said, I'll get back to you. <laughs> and I, I had to talk to my father. And that was probably the biggest turn in my life. This is that point in your life where you say you can go left or you can go right. Wow. Mm-hmm. And this is the day. And so I sit down with my dad and I have to explain to him, you know, dad, that this this white collar job working at Ford for 50 years and drafting car parts. I said, I just want to drive a Mustang. I don't want to build it. <laughs> and, and I said, this is your dream. It's not my dream. I don't right. want to be in the same office for 55 years. Why don't you just take a gun and shoot me now and get it over with? You know. And uh, we talked about it for quite some time. And I guess he could see that his dream, it just wasn't my dream. He says, I feel bad for you, son. He says, if you don't go to college now, you'll never go back to school, which he was right. <laughs> but you, this music thing, he says, you're going to live out a suitcase and you're not going to have any money and you're not going to have any pension plan. You're not going to have any other thing. And I said, you know, dad, things have changed. Mm-hmm. There's a different way to go, you know, and things have changed. So, you know, I just, I don't want to do this. I want to play music, you know. And I told him, I said, it's plenty of time to go to school. It was there five years ago to be there five years later. If nothing happens and I'm wrong, I can. I'm not a dumb guy. I can go back and fix this, you know. And so he let me go, and that's when I left home. Wow! Thing was right before what, my. What was your mom birthday. saying about all this? My mom says, "Do what you want to do." Smart. She's more the free spirit, you know. It was my dad who was in the thing. And what an unbelievable story! Yeah. When did your dad set aside his worry? When I bought him a house, I think he really set aside his worry. Yeah, that's not true because he he was. I didn't pay cash for his house because all my accountants were saying you got to write off the interest and you got to, you know. And he was a little nervous about that. So he kept his old house. And by the way, my parents, they didn't really think I was doing too well because they came to California and I was living not far from here. And my dad thought that because you had to go up the hill 
that your house wasn't as desirable? Oh, my God. <laughs> and the further you went up the hill, that nobody wanted to be there, so they stuffed him up there. And then he saw the house like yours, and he said, there ain't a brick in that house. And he looked at the wall. He says, I can punch my fist through this wall. It's stucco. You know, he didn't get stucco at all. He's like, where's the bricks? You need some bricks. Wow. And he looked at yeah. my house, stuck a wall. He tapped on the side and went, it's a piece of crap. <laughs> <laughs> it's made out of wood and stuck a wall. Right, right. I mean, you're kidding me? You know, uh, I guess the part that really upset him is I had a Lincoln Continental when I got here. And I had traded in on a little Mercedes convertible. And he said, he told the relative, he couldn't even pick us up from the airport. I mean, he lost his Lincoln. Now he's driving a little car. We got to roll the windows up by hand. I mean, you got this itty bitty two seater so car. That's so funny. And, and I never forget my dad's description of the car. He says, it's a bust your pants car. You sit down there and you bust your pants. <laughs> Wow. He had a Ford Lincoln when he left here. I mean, what you know? Did they move here to Los no, Angeles? No, they never left no, here. They never left no. Detroit. They they had their relatives there, and uh, when I was luckily for me, I got my really first big record when I was like twenty two. So I bought my parents a house. And remember, I told you my parents were older than me, and yeah, in your River Rouge, forty seven. So she's almost seventy now. Yeah, in the late sixties. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I I go to Detroit. And for $250,000, I could buy a house on like seven acres. And my dad liked to fish. River Ruich was running through the back of the house, through the yard. And the house had all these levels. It was gorgeous. The gates in the front. I'm thinking, man, it's in Beverly Hills. You couldn't even get the driveway going. I mean, I could buy, you know, I'm going to set my parents up the place. And my mom and my dad came out and my dad looked at me. He was so excited. He says, you know what, son? This is really nice you that you want to do something for a second. But he says, we can't live here. Your mom can't go a half these stairs up to the dining room and back down to the living room and to the kitchens over there up the stairs. And I hadn't really thought about that. You know, I was a little late. And he thanked. He says, what we would rather have is just a house on one level. Right. Small enough where your mom can. I said, but dad, we'll get the maid. Mom doesn't want me maid living in a house. Right. So I hired the gardener and all the rest of stuff. They fired everybody. My dad went to Sears and bought one of those tractors he could ride. In, <laughs> and he plowed his own snow. And I mean, they were so uncomfortable with the exterminator service and people ringing the door. But they fired everybody. Right? So, they just yeah. they just weren't into it, you know. And But he loved the house I bought him. And. Let him tell the story. The first person he had over was his best friend across the street, whose kid is still in jail, who told right. my dad, you know, uh, you're wasting all your money on this kid, right? So that guy comes over, and he looks at my dad's house, and he says, wow, this is a big place. He says, 40 Christmas trees, a huge backyard. He says, what does it cost to heat a place like this? And my dad says, here comes the best moment of my life. He says, I have no idea. My son <laughs> pays for everything. <laughs> He thought that was just the coolest moment of his life. He says, I have absolutely no idea. Oh, my god! My gosh. son pays for everything. I don't see a bill. I just, I'm just i just living here. Wow. Having a good time. And yeah. they lived in the house another 20 years till they're like 85. Oh, how wow. beautiful is that? So you came from a place where you had safety and comfort and absolutely. loved in your home. Yes. And what about your brother? Same thing. My brother would have, by the way, my brother had a gold, gold record. His problem was he sort of identified with his best friends at the time and they weren't that bright. And they signed a deal that wasn't any good for them and they made no money and both of us trying to make our parents proud of us there was a year i think it was on my second album it was christmas time and my dad had been loaning my brother money and remember my dad builds cars so he's saying well you know okay so lincoln costs five thousand cadillac costs five thousand two hundred i mean it's you know i work here or if i work over there if i make sixteen thousand a year maybe if you work at gm you make sixteen too but everything's close so my brother's record was one notch ahead of mine on the chart 
So he's looking at both sons with records on the chart. And I'll never forget, this is where he broke my brother's heart. And I think my brother was never going to play music again, or at least commercially. He looked at my brother and he says, I don't understand this. You need money. His, how much Opelt? My brother's name is Opelton. Strange name. Different kind Opelt? of name. Opelt? Opelt? Named after our uncle. We only know two people with that name, my uncle and my brother. <laughs> and he says, how much money did you make this year on your gold album? And my brother made $1,750. I'll never forget it. So he needed some money help that year. And my dad says, okay, well, your record is one in front of Ray's record. Well, Ray, how much money did you make this year? And I think I made like $2.3 million or some crazy number at the time, you know. And my dad went off. He says, I don't understand this business you guys are in. He says, how can one person doing the same thing be worth, you know, that big a difference? Because he's going back to cars. One thing has to be somewhat close to the other one, right? And I was busy trying to explain to my dad, it depends on what deal you have and how you did it. And my brother wouldn't let me get my lawyer to read his paperwork. He just signed it. First, he asked me to have him read. I said, well, okay, my lawyer's going to read it, but he's doing it for free as a favor to me. Give him four days, at least three days. Two days later, he had signed the deal. And when he signed the deal, it meant he got none of the publishing. He got none of the production. It was just a terrible deal. God. Did he ever recover from that? No. Well, he would have had a career in music because he's really good. And where is he now? He's a minister now. No kidding. My brother's a jack of all trades. He can draw pictures, he paints, nicest guy in the world. Then he became a mechanic. He was doing engineering for trucks and all that stuff. Then he became a minister. But anything just about he puts his mind to, he can do it. Was he heartbroken about his music career? I think so. Yeah, he never recorded again after that. Wow. There are so many stories like this, and it's just tragic. Yeah, they broke his heart. I mean, he put his heart in the music. It was all on the radio. Everything was going great. And then to have your big brothers doing it. And you're, you're getting no money. Right. <laughs> for some money. And well, I never said I told you so. at the same so. time, I mean, those But you don't have to say I told you so. He's listening. He's looking at it saying I told you so. But right. I, mm-hmm. what I tried to encourage him with and say, look, I had a lot of bad things happen to me. You got to let that go. That's just the beginning of your career. You're only like a teenager. I mean, come on. Let's get this going again. Yeah. You know? Was that album your first gold? Was was it the one with Shaka Khan or what? what? No, that no, the one with Shaka Khan is way early. That's when I first moved to California. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a good story to that one. I had that gold album with Shaka Khan, and I had a really big song on Barry White. At times, you see the trouble with me. And I thought I was hot. You know, going home to my parents. <laughs> I'm going to show y'all I made it. My mom looked at me. She says, okay. I gave her the album, and she sees Shaka Khan. She says, I, I don't see you. Right? I said, well, mom, I wrote the song. She says, what does that mean? She didn't even know what that was. You know, I said, that means, what does that mean? <laughs> it means I get more money than playing the guitar on it, mom. She says, oh, okay. She didn't seem to look like she was too phased about Christmas time. I'm like, no, this is a big deal, mom. I got the song. You know, so he had record, you know. And uh, she says, well, is your name on here? I said, yeah. So I pull out the record. There's the label. So I never forget, it was a black label with silver writing. So it's hard to see. Now, my mother's. You know, late 60s. She said words to me, and this is, she didn't mean any harm, but she said, go get my magnifying glass. <gasps> Ouch. <laughs> we would have been saying Ouch. the same thing at our age now. Okay, exactly. <laughs> I would be doing it now. But yeah. it's, there was something about just the truth and the essence of it that was just so real to me. And then she took the magnifying glass and she was like this, and she saw my name. It said R. Parker. And she says, well, couldn't they just give you an A-Y instead of the dot? I mean, could they, you know, put your whole name on there? I'm like, so I went to Detroit with the biggest ego in the world. I left, like, I, I got to make a record with my picture on the front. My mother doesn't even understand what it is I do. I mean, and I'm right. having trouble explaining. What's worse, if I'm explaining it to her, I'm getting more embarrassed <laughs> as I explain it to her. She can't even see my name is so small. Wow. Just the essence of that. I knew something was wrong. Right. I got to go get my name. Amazing you know, lesson to learn yeah. and that you didn't expect to learn, yeah. right? Yeah. 
Wow. And I tell you, it's funny who I met at the time. That's that's when I first met David Foster, and we were hanging out. And he had written a song called Wildflower. Well, most people never knew he wrote it, and he told me he wrote that. He's a little bit older than me, five, six years old. Than me. But at the time, I was just writing the Shaka Khan song, and he had that song. I said, David, man, we used to play this song in high school as a kid. I mean, this is a popular song. I'm looking at a white guy from <laughs> Did Detroit. Did you like that or not? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I guess he had a blind scene, but I'm looking at him like, you wrote that? I can't even picture you in the same room. You know? <laughs> so we became pretty good friends, and both of us were starting off at the same time. I, I don't know if we, we were doing a session. We were only making like 35 bucks an hour because he had just moved to L.A., and we didn't know a lot of people, and I didn't know a lot of people, and we'd all kind of Right. Up, you know, and all those guys at the beginning of our careers trying to get it together, you know. So, but you know, he was talented back in the day, and most people he plays the piano way better than most people give him credit for. To me, when you say the name David, I'm thinking of his piano playing. It's like if you said my name, yeah. he's probably thinking of my guitar playing, mm-hmm. and everything else was just uh, extra. So you start. So once you started working, you've always worked. I mean, you've oh, yeah. never had any kind of period of time where you weren't working or doing yeah. something that well, was. There was a time when I wasn't working. That's when both of my parents passed. Yeah, a year apart. I didn't know what to do with myself. 92, 93. I don't think I did anything till 2000. <laughs> so, you know, one. So, I mean, it was the first time in my life I ever taken like six, seven years off. I mean, I'm doing absolutely nothing except being irresponsible and just having a great time. And you had kids at that time, right? I had two sons. Yeah, they mm-hmm. were just being born. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you got to be with them. Yeah, too. yeah I got to be with my kids. And yeah. by that time, I'm a pilot, too. So I'm flying, you know. Mm-hmm. And I had a plane. I was water skiing every lake you can imagine and skiing every mountain on the planet you could think of here and in Europe and were you, south Were you grieving? Is that why you were doing all that? Well, I don't know. I just – I didn't even know who I was. I was so close to my parents that the idea of making a record – why am I working so hard to make a record if my dad isn't going to hear it? And it's not – and when it goes up the chart, if my dad isn't there yeah. looking at me win the wars, I mean, right. what are we doing here? Who passed first? My father passed first. And then your mom. Then my mom. She must it's, have been bereft without him. Yeah. Well, she, had, my mom snuck out. We were paying so much attention to my dad because he had cancer. Then my mom developed Alzheimer's. And my mom was gone before we knew it. Like, as soon as my dad went, my mom was in such bad shape, she didn't even know that my dad had died. Mm-hmm. Wow. Right, until I took her to the funeral. And then she looked at the funeral. For some reason, at the service, she woke up and said, what the heck are you doing? I didn't come here to see all this. And then she went back to oblivion. You know? wow. But for that moment, she got clear as a whistle. We're like, what's going on here? You know? Oh, boy. Okay, yeah, so. These things happen to yeah. you. Know? But yeah. I was so close to my mom and my dad. And my dad was the one who traveled with me everywhere. If I went to Europe, he went to mm-hmm. Europe. If I went to Paris, he went to Paris. They give us all these first-class tickets. First ticket goes to my dad. Mm-hmm. Then we worry about the managers and Clopy, you know, rest of you guys. What <sighs> an unbelievable gift to have such a close relationship with your parents. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, everywhere. My dad's line was, I got a suitcase packed next to the bed. No <laughs> advance notice. All I need is a phone call to say when the flight is, and I'm on it. Did your colleagues just love your dad, too? Oh, yeah. Was yeah, he like, dad, like yeah. the mascot yeah. almost? Yeah. And yeah. I think the nicest trip we ever took is to Japan because they honor the parents more than they do the kids. Right? So we went to Japan, and we had this great show. And Somebody told the producer of the show that I like young girls. So he sent us to a restaurant where none of the girls were over 18. Okay. And each one of us had five girls apiece. We had not sex. I'm talking about for the for the dinner. One girl would massage your back. One girl would cut your food and serve it to you. One girl would do your drink and serve it to you. One girl would play the guitar and the other stuff. My dad sat on the table like this. He, goes, he just <laughs> opened his mouth coolest. to be he fed. Was the coolest thing, yeah. Coolest thing in the world. And so 
this show was such a big show that the Sony came and all the companies came and they gave us all these gifts. And, you know, I had all these tape recorders and cameras. I'm like, gosh, I don't know if I can pay for this stuff at the border patrol. I can't even sneak it in. I got so much <laughs> stuff. It's not even going to suit. We got to pay the tax on it. You know? But then for my father, they came out with the first V8 camera and the first this and first. I mean, we looked at my father's bag. It looked made ours look like nothing. <laughs> Mine was nothing. How nice for your parents yeah. that they got to see your success. Yeah. Okay, so now you're living in L.A. You're fancing around. Now, at some point in time, you get married. Yes. You start a family. That's way later. Yeah, let's talk about my relationships with women. I didn't really get that part too well. You know what? You're I so, have, so you're holding back so much, right? Well, I didn't yeah. have girlfriends in high school. You know, I didn't, I never went to. You were the, working all the time. Yeah. So I didn't really have a sweetheart, girlfriend in school. In fact, I didn't really have many friends at school. So I didn't want to go to my prom. I didn't want to graduate, to be honest with truthful. My cousin paid me $100 to walk across the stage because I, I was too young to figure out it was important to my parents. Uh, you know, so he said, look, you got to walk across stages. <laughs> got to stay see the line. I got to pop me. Forget it. I'm done. You know, I barely got my degree. I don't care. I said, I don't even want the degree. Just keep it, you know. But it was important to my parents. And he knew that. So he gave me $100. I said, look, here's $100. Bucks, Tired of negotiating with you. 100 bucks to walk across stage. That got my attention. I'm good with that. You know, 100 bucks. All I got to do is walk across stage. 100 bucks. Done. You know, everybody was happy. But the prom, I'll never forget prom for me was there was a girl that I wasn't dating, but I would take her to the movies. So my other friends wouldn't tease me and think I'm gay or something like that. You know, you're always by yourself. You guys are like, okay, you guys got your girlfriends to go. You want me to go with you? I don't want to go to movies, but I'll go. And this girl is the girl I took to the movies sometime. Wasn't no big deal. Well, guess what? Come prom night and all the rest of the stuff, it turns into a big deal. I mean, she's already thinking she's going. I never asked her to go to prom with me. <laughs> you know what I mean? I wasn't going to the prom. I can tell you that. I'm a, in fact, it's prom night. I'm going to try and find me a gig where I can make me a hundred bucks. You know, I'm not going to go to. Anyway, her mother called my mother That's... and was talking about, what's your son? Talking about, she's not going. And we bought her the dress. I mean, like, how could you buy a dress? I never asked a girl to go, you know. And back then, I'll never forget, it was uh, the girls were the aggressive ones. They wanted to go get a hotel room and stay up all night and all that stuff, mm. you know, and go to dinner and all that stuff. And, and I have you pay. I was, yeah, I wasn't with none of that. I mean, I'm, with, I mean, I'm embarrassed today to say, but, you know, I, I made her and the other guys, I said, I'm, I'm paying one quarter of this. That's it. And I, had, I had all the money, right? I like, I'm not paying for dinner. I'm not paying for the hotel room. I'm paying a quarter. That's it. I'll wow. pay my quarter, not a penny more. I don't want to go. And I try to leave as soon as I could. I just wasn't into it, you know. So wow. now you've, so now you've got your initiation. You're out on the road. You're having the best time. And so then I come back to, you know, Stevie's band. We're touring the rest of the stuff. And as much as I appreciate the opportunity, and he taught me how to write songs and a whole bunch of other stuff. I wanted to quit the band because I wanted to do something else. And I was in the band maybe seven months, which to me, seemed like seven years when you're that age yeah and i just wanted to make my own records i wanted to get i just wanted to do more you know so i quit the band broke his heart that's another story because we were like best friends at the time i was letting him teaching him how to drive cars and and uh, we party drive together. cars yeah 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 we drive anywhere we go the two of us would go together and i was driving a car and he's sitting next to me and sometimes he'd be driving a car I'd be sitting next to him, that's, you know? that's driving on the, with a blind yeah. man driving that's yeah he thought he was on wilshire boulevard he's in a parking lot of sears in the middle of the night you know you know the difference <laughs> when i say stop stop when i say left yeah. left when i say right right you know yeah so we did some of that stuff we did a lot of crazy stuff that I can't say but we had a lot we had a lot of fun so when I left the band it was kind of a I don't think to this day we have like sort of a love-hate relationship I don't think he I think he hasn't forgiven me yet mm. you know 
but he calls me for everything. We, we're best of friends, but every now and then he looks at me like, uh, you really hurt my feelings when you left the band. <laughs> you know oh, so we man. still go back there. It's kind of touching. Now we're here. We're in California. So now we're here. You're having a good life. And we're having a great life. We're recording, meeting all the people we talked about and uh-huh. other people and having a good time. And, and I'm dating some girls. But, you know, most of my thing was I never lived with any girl except my wife. Right? I never liked anybody messing up my place. I, was, I, I don't know how to cook. I tried a couple of times. I burned one house to the ground. What? Then I burned, uh, yeah. I, I, I was a good loner. I thought maybe I'd never get married. Um, <clears throat> most of the relationships I had, even when I thought I really, really liked somebody, I still didn't want them in my house for more than two days, you know. Because, you know, girls be leaving stuff in your house. It's like, what the, get that stuff out of the club. Well, how did all this stuff get here? You know, <laughs> I don't even remember when they brought it in, but take it out, you know. And so for That's me, it was easier. Trick, you know, if I leave it behind, then I have a reason to go back. I have back. to come back, yeah. yeah. Well, that didn't go great with me. And then by the time I got my own airplane, was flying myself. That was great because now nobody has to know where I live. I'll just fly to you, mm-hmm. stay there a day or two, and split. <laughs> so it was perfect. People were like, when do I come over to your house? You don't come over to my house. Mm-hmm. That's the whole point of this, you know. And can, to, I ask, yeah. can, can I ask a question about that? Sure. Is it privacy or is it a particular way of wanting to have things or what is it? Because I didn't have relationships in high school or any of that kind of stuff. I just selfish. Just I want to do it my way. Mm-hmm. You know, when somebody said, let's watch Channel 7. Why? I want to watch Channel 4. It's my TV. I'm at <laughs> right. home. I want to watch Channel 4. And, you know, think, you know, I didn't like anybody eating out of my food. You know, I'll never forget my parents were in town. And there was a beautiful girl who lived across the street from me in West Hollywood. And, you know, we sort of connected. I think she was a year or two older than me. And we went to Las Vegas and she wanted to eat because I want to see my parents. They were again. She wanted to eat some of my French fries. We had such a big fight about it. I drove her all the way to L.A., dropped her off and drove back. Oh you know what I mean? Wow. Because it's French fries. My mother's like, oh, let the girl eat your French fries. You buy I'll buy her some French fries. Just don't eat mine. She's like, no, I want to eat yours. <laughs> That's so funny. I wonder where that comes from. <laughs> no. so, so we ruined a perfectly romantic weekend that we thought both of us felt some energy and it just went south, you know, like uh-huh. a magnet, uh-huh. you know. And um, I don't know. I just never really connected with anybody until I met my wife. Mm-hmm. And I met her, and she was the first one that was ever in my space that didn't offend me for whatever the reason. I don't know why. I'm not saying that some of the other people weren't nice, you know. But it's just uh, she was just the only one that didn't offend And you know what? We've been together now 28 years, and I'm still excited, you know. That's beautiful. She's a fantastic girl, too. Yeah, yeah. She's very she's a nice. fantastic girl. I hate to tell you we've had a marriage where we just about never argue. Right, we never spent one night apart arguing or something like that, and and whatever little argument you we have is because she got mad because she backed the car into this or you know, something yeah. that doesn't really matter. We've never really had a, a major issue or anything, you know. Now you have how many children? Well, I have four sons. At one point, I had six sons. Then they invented DNA, and two of them weren't mine. Mm. So do you know the, them? Those, those two? are bad. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I knew that when my parents died, they thought they were their grandkids. Uh huh. So those are some of the bad decisions I made earlier on in my life. Hi, I have a kid. I'm telling <laughs> yeah, you it's yours, but it's right not here. really yours. Yeah, yeah. So let's go back over the timeline for a little bit because you had a great career out of the box. You hit the time right. I, I you, had a very you fortunate. grew yeah. up in the perfect city, yeah. musical mm-hmm. city that was just about to explode. You were massively talented. And now you're in California and you're living in Hollywood, yeah. in that Hollywood universe. And then 
you wrote the song that became the song that is so closely aligned to you yeah. that when everybody hears your name, they say, who are you going to call? <laughs> so yeah. let's talk about that. You know, most people say, well, why did they call you? Well, they call me because by that time, I've now recorded seven or eight Golden Planet albums in a row. At this point, my parents are sick. It's not quite, it's not the 90s, it's mid 80s, 84. But that's when we first found out my dad was sick. And my mom was starting to just have troubles, but they would live another several years, you know, pretty good. They didn't fade out bad to the end. But, you know, when you hear your parents are sick, that got my attention pretty quick, you know. So I'm thinking, wow. And I just signed a deal, I think, with Geffen Records for too much money. And I'm thinking, well, I'm a young kid. I don't have any kids. You know, I, I mean, at that time, I didn't have anything. It's just me. I thought, well, I got enough money to last me three lifetimes. You know, I'm not really buying anything crazy or doing anything crazy. I didn't know how much kids were going to cost and lawsuits and the rest of the stuff. I didn't figure that into my plans, you know. But I mean, I was good. I was going to be okay. And so I wanted to spend more time with my parents. So I sort of just didn't. That was the first year I didn't cut a hit record. I remember it was like 83. Every year I'd had a major hit album, a hit record. And I got a phone call in January. And I remember I was in Detroit because I was going to stay most of the year in Detroit that year. And it was from Gerald Busby, and he wanted me to hear this group called A New Edition. He wanted me to come to Boston and hear I'm like, Boston, man, I'm having trouble with my parents. I'm in Detroit already. It's cold enough. You want me to go to Boston? <laughs> I just told him, no, I'm not going. You know, like, I'm not even feeling this, Boston. He was a smart guy. So he called back a week later. He says, how about we take the jet and we go down to the Bahamas? where the kids are playing. <laughs> and I'll take you to Donald Trump's restaurant. We'll go to the casino. The, and I'm sitting in Detroit miserable, hearing all nothing but bad news. Your dad's got this. Yeah, we got to operate or do we not operate? You know, that was back when they thought they could fix it. You know, yeah. do we do this? Do we not do this? I'm thinking about all that. And your mom needs this care and you got to start hiring in-home care. You know, so I'm thinking about all this stuff is going through my mind. All right, I can use a vacation. I'm going with you. So we go down to the Bahamas and we party so much. We miss the kids show. It's terrible. We missed. We show up. We, by the time we get in the car, we show up at the thing. They're walking off the stage. Oh Mr. God. Parker, how'd you like our show? Like, oh, mm. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. And so I felt so bad, you know. But all of that played great. And you know what they did say that I remember. He said, "How did you like how we did your song?" I'm like, well, I hadn't written the song yet. What are you talking about? And so Gerald then he announced to me. He says, "You don't have to write the song. They want to do one of your really older songs." You know, and it was a song that I really didn't like. I, I sort of redid the words and made. That song, A Woman Needs Love, which was a number one record for me. Mm -hmm. But I changed the words. But same song. And their song was Mr. Telephone Man. And they did a version of that. They said, well, they just want you to record the track, produce it on, cut it again, da, da, da. I was like, oh, okay, well, I guess we could do that. You know, I was a little depressed. I didn't want to record much at that time. <clears throat> so I flew all the way to L.A. to do Mr. Telephone Man, which became Bobby Brown's first song he ever sang. It became a huge hit. And this sort of their signature song. You yeah. Know, they really made it popular. But that same week that I was doing that, I was sitting at Spago having lunch, looking out the window, and there's this black poster on Sunset where there's painting this red circle. I'm thinking to myself, what the heck is that? Right? That's a black. The poster was black when I first came to town. There was nothing on it. And all of a sudden, now they're painting a red circle. I'm like, what is that? You know, and they weren't painting the ghost yet. They were just painting a red circle. And I'll never forget, you know, I got a phone call. It was from Gary Lamel, and he says, you got to help me with this film. Now, Gary was friends of mine from Barry White days and some other stuff. And he says, the film is coming out in a few weeks. We've now spent a year and a half. We've hired everybody, famous, not famous. We've spent a fortune. And nobody's cut anything the director likes. And he says, you can do this. 
he was convinced 100% that I was the guy to do this. He says, I just know you. This is your right up your alley. This is what you're going to do. And I'm thinking to myself, I am? And then he starts telling me about the film. I'm like, ghosts? I don't know about ghosts. I write about girls. What are you talking about ghosts? You know, you know. So he's you know, he's telling me about the film. And then he says, the post, he says, you may have seen the posters around town. I'm like, yeah, I saw that black poster with the circle. He says, that's it. He said, that's it. You got to come see this film. And uh, I told him, well, I'm really not here. I'm just here you know, doing this new edition thing, I'm going back home. He says, well, if you're not working, what are you doing with the new edition? I says, I'm just cutting one. He says, well, then you're working, okay? <laughs> so stay three more days. I'll pay you $50,000 to stay three more days and think about it. You write the song. You don't even have to record it all. He says, if we if we like it or don't like it, you keep the 50 grand. Just give us a song. He said, but here's what we need. We need the song with the words Ghostbusters in the song. And they showed me the movie, and I met with the director, Ivan Reitman. And everybody was adamant about, we must have those words, Ghostbusters, in the song. He said, we don't need a whole song. It's just going to be 20 seconds in the library scene. But when that movie starts off, we need that song in there with the words in the song. Well, he told me what kind of music he wanted, which I thought was fairly simple. But the words Ghostbusters to music, that's not working. Now I see why he spent a year and a half and paid everybody, (laughs) you know, and it wasn't happening. I was like, how the heck are you going to sing? And no matter what I did, it's not fair to you guys now because you've already heard the song. But no matter how you sing, Ghostbusters, it just doesn't (laughs) say it's a terrible word to sing. Terrible word to sing. And there was a part in the movie where they showed the phone number under the Ghostbusters, the four guys, and they had the backpacks. Well, if it's uh, if you've been up for three days trying to figure this out and you had no sleep, at four in the morning, those guys look just like the bug exterminators and they look just like the Roto-Rooter guys <laughs> and them guys to me because they all got backpacks and they all tear the phone. Who do you call to wash your trouble down the drain? You know, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> And so I'm looking at that, like, and I'm sleeping. I'm going, oh, my gosh. You know, it's like the lights came on. It says, oh, my gosh, the messenger's coming in five hours. I got absolutely nothing happening here. And and I said, that's it. I'm not going to ever say Ghostbusters. I'm just going to say, who you going to call? You know, which is my slang way of saying it from Detroit. Yeah. Who are you going to call? And so as soon as I got that, I perked up. I knew this was it. I called my girlfriend, who's uh, at the time she was 17 years old, about to turn 18. Later, and now she's my oldest son's mother. You know, that's another story that we don't have time for. You know? <laughs> but she, you know, and she called her friends, and they came down to the studio at seven in the morning. They got to be in class at eight, and they just start screaming. They said, "What do we do?" I said, "This is going to be really easy. I'm going to play this part, and you guys scream as loud as you can." Go. That's right. And the the strange combination, and this is how things, electricity happens and you, these things you can't plan. My Detroit accent with the little ghetto sound on it, you know, and these girls are like some valley girls. I mean, they, they really got that Owen Wilson kind of yeah. accent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Them screaming Ghostbusters yeah, so far away from me. It made the word Ghostbusters in that room. And I'm on this side singing, you know, and it just worked. You know, so they went, did that, left. I put the rest of the stuff on. Ivan Reitman heard it, and that's it. He loved it. That's an amazing story. And you yeah. made a like iconic music video. Yeah, I mean, of all yeah. the work that you've done and everything that you've uh, done and been successful for, they remember that. I would have to say that's probably that the thing that's it most is. recognizable. Do any of your children follow in your musical talent, yes. have your musical talent? Yes, I actually, that's what I was telling you. The next door to my house, I built a whole other house with a studio in it because my two youngest sons are really, really talented. And they're making, all of their records are coming out this summer, by the way. Wow. How old are they? 17 and 19. And wow. what do they go by? What is their, the name uh, of Gibson is one and Jericho is the other. Okay. They're not playing together. They're separate. Okay. Gibson's in music school at Belmont. Because Redmond's so much like you. 
Yeah. No, he's got the same brain that you have. Yeah. He loves yeah, he's the hustler. And, he's yeah, the he, hustler. All the, all the four sons are pretty interesting people. They're all different. But Redman's probably the most comical of the bunch. You hang out with him a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he hangs out with me a lot. Let's put it like that. <laughs> yeah. He's the one who actually wants to hang with, out with dad more than anybody else. Yeah. If my phone rings and it's one of the four sons, twice as much it'll be Redman, if not three times as much. Yeah. So let's talk about today. What are you doing today? What oh are you doing gosh, now? what am I doing today? Well, I'm doing a podcast, the Ray right. Parker Jr. show, which we've having everybody on. And you have to come be on my show now. Thank you. I nice love these you. podcasts. Everybody, we're on each other's shows and mm-hmm. we can all talk about our lives and just have a good time. And you do your show out of your studio? Out of my studio at home, yeah. And we do video and audio. So you come looking yes, I have pretty to put that lipstick day. On That's when right. I come into come looking pretty that day. <laughs> None of this dirty here yeah. thing going on. And you're making a documentary or a documentary yes, made they're making about a, your yeah, life. The guy Fran Strine, who who did Hired Gun, got a lot of traction on that film. Uh, he decided when we were doing promotion, we went to Australia together and some other places. And you know, the more he heard about my story, he thought my story was. The mo- was four of us he wanted to do stories on. Let me start with that. It's me, David Foster, Jay Graydon, and Steve Lukather. And as a, out of all the stories, he thought he should start with my story because he thought mine was the most interesting, you know, mm-hmm. coming from Detroit, mm-hmm. or mine is the most different. There's so many creative people in the world, and there's so many creative people that circle around you yeah. that it's, it's, um, it's remarkable. I want to just go back to your podcast. I would like you to tell our listeners the name of it slowly okay. so that they can get the it. The Ray Parker Jr. Show. Beautiful. Podcasts. It's on everywhere. iTunes, everything, everywhere you can see it. Oh, so give we're, us we're a sample a of time. who you've interviewed on your podcast. A sample of who we've interviewed Steve Bellamy, the CEO of Kodak Films, president of Kodak Films. I've interviewed Thomas McClary, oh, yeah. who started the Commodores. You know, He's been on my show. I've interviewed Howard Hewitt. So we've mm-hmm. had some music people. We've had business mm-hmm. people too. Don Lewis, actress. We did. I, had, I did Ernie Hudson of Ghostbusters. Oh my God! So I did him. That's He's pretty interesting. Fantastic. Yeah, Another so one of my neighbors about, from Hidden yeah. uh, John Mendoza, Howie Mandel's yep. opening yep. guy and partner. Did we done? So we have He's comedians. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So just a just a, a slew of people. Yeah, different well, kind of rock musicians. I can't wait to be by you on my podcast. On yeah, your yeah. Podcast. subscribe <laughs> on iTunes at least. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 It's everywhere, and. What I like about all these podcasts is I can do your podcast. You could do mine. It cross connects to other people. Multi- the multiplier goes out like that. Yeah. And it's just a new way of the world. And, and yeah. people like to hear I think you're right. just the stories of what it is and, and what you're doing. And well, stuff. there's a lot of people yeah. I have found in, in my life that a lot of people look, I'll use me as an example. They look yeah. at me and there's a certain amount of, well, how did that happen? You know, right. and there, there's n- not everybody wishes everybody well. Mm-hmm. And so there is a certain amount of misunderstanding or envy that goes mm-hmm. along with all people that have right. achieved a level of success. And when you sit down and you hear their stories and you hear how hard it was to get from A to B, <laughs> then all of a they sudden you, you turn a and bit. look at it from a exactly. different point of yeah. view. So yeah. that to me has been the greatest experience. And we've had the opportunity in here to talk to people like you mm-hmm. and hear your story. Yeah. And it's a fantastic story. And to see who you are and where you came from and that you came from such a loving place. I would start crying in a second over that. <laughs> yeah. Such a wonderful experience to have yeah. been raised by the people who raised you. And they l- allowed you to have self-confidence to go out in the world and yeah. encouraged it. And what a gift. It is a gift. What a true yeah. gift. And every day I know I'm blessed. I always tell people I'm, I'm the most happiest, blessed guy in the world. And I have enough sense to know it. Yeah. Wow. That, that comes that comes shining through. Yeah, I have it enough really sense to know it. Well, we can't thank you enough for coming. Really, well, it's great Thanks, to be here. Treat yeah. to spend this time with you. Thank you. Thanks, Ray. 
next on Say It Forward. Cindy Whitehead became a professional skateboarder at barely 17. She's an entrepreneur, a top sports stylist, a boundary-busting author, and an advocate for girl skaters on a global scale. Cindy is the first female member of the Skateboarding Hall of Fame. Her legacy in this sport is distinguished by her bold imagination and sheer guts. Her truth is captured by her many favorite lines. Live life balls to the wall. Do epic shit. And take every dare that comes your way. Recently, she made the front page of the L.A. Times when she slipped past the police and skateboarded solo down L.A.'s 405 freeway during Carmageddon. Her international girl skating initiative, Girl is Not a Four-Letter Word, continues her message that girls deserve a chance to skate at the top levels of this sport. The good news for us is that she's here to tell us all about her early days, showing the boys a thing or two about how to ride vert. Don't know what vert is? Well, let's find out when we rewind to the beginning with skateboard champ Cindy Whitehead on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 